squig of water. Is that right? I'm feeling rather parched. You know, Spurgeon used to advise people to gargle vinegar before um, public speaking, but he had thousands of people in the big auditorium. So I'm not going to do that. I've got a microphone. What do I plan to do tonight? Well, we've got this section to look at, and I will try my best not to go on too long. And I will, if, if I am going on too long, I will just cover the first bit tonight, verses 9 to 13, and somebody else can pick up where I left off next week. But hopefully I'll be able to do the two parts because they both fit together and they both relate to each other. And it's a shame to to butcher the word of God and cut it up into pieces when there's a context to be had here. In this section, we see Jesus is coming into contact, um, coming into conflict more and more often with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees increasingly bombard him with questions. In another context, these questions might be innocent, um, curious questions asking about clarification about particular points of Jesus' conduct and ministry. But we know, don't we, the Pharisees, what they were like. They were opposed to Jesus, they were cynical, they were hard-hearted, and these questions are a kind of attack on the integrity and the identity of Jesus. In the same way, this is just an aside, as Christian people, we need, don't we, in these days, wisdom to know how to answer critics. People who come to us with all kinds of questions and objections And we need to learn from the Lord Jesus. Have you noticed how every time he spoke to somebody, it was always different how he responded to people? Such wisdom, the Lord, to to deal with different objections in wise ways. We need to pray that God gives us similar wisdom. Because we do get cynics, don't we? We get people who are very opposed to the things of God. Of course, Jesus always gives wise answers. He gives the wisest possible answers to these critics. But there's nothing to suggest the Pharisees ever went away satisfied or challenged by his teaching. We never read about them going away to evaluate their own attitudes, do we? Or challenged, or thank you for clearing that up, Jesus. Let's go away and think about that. Perhaps we need to make some adjustments in our life. We never see any of that. We see more and more stubbornness and hard-heartedness on the part of the Pharisees. What about the dangers of rejecting the Messiah? Just as an introduction for you. The stubbornness of the Pharisees should be a warning for anyone today who won't believe in the biblical Jesus because he doesn't conform to their narrow, rigid idea of what the Messiah should be like. When the church of Jesus Christ, who represents him, when they present Jesus Christ, him crucified, the biblical Jesus, many turn away and say, I can't believe in a Jesus like that. I'm sure you've had conversations over the years with people. You've talked about Jesus the wonders of the Lord Jesus, the gospel. People say, oh, I can't believe in, in, a, in, in a Messiah like that, in a Jesus like that. It's fallen human nature to only accept a saviour that conforms to our own sense of rightness and logic rather than humbly accepting the one that God has given us. I think the reasoning goes something like this. Jesus can't possibly be the true Messiah because he would never have done this. Or Jesus couldn't possibly have been the true Messiah because he he would have done this and he didn't do this. Or if Jesus were the true Messiah, he would have certainly said something about this and he didn't, so he can't possibly be the true Messiah. This is the kind of way that people reason today, hard-hearted people. An example of this would be how a Muslim 
I don't want to misrepresent Muslims, but how a Muslim person, the ones that I've spoken to at least, would represent Jesus. So they would say, well, Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah in that sense that you Christians believe in. They would say, it's ludicrous and outrageous to suggest that God, the Son of God, could die on the cross. How can God die? It's ludicrous to the Muslim to suggest that Jesus can be co-equal with the Father and the Son in a Trinitarian relationship. That's impossible. How can God be like that? Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah that you proclaim him to be. And so on. And there are millions of objections like that. The Jewish um, friend would say the same thing as well. He'd say, Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah that our people have waited for because the Messiah should do this or do that. And he certainly wouldn't have died on the cross. These people, sadly, and many others like them, are wedded to this fixed idea of what a Messiah should be like, concocted by their own sense of logic and rightness. What we need to do is accept Jesus for who he truly is, the biblical Jesus that's recorded for us in this book, testified to by the, by the Holy Spirit, and we need to proclaim him and believe in him. But dear friends, it doesn't just take place outside the church, this kind of hard-hearted uh, refusal to believe in the true biblical Jesus. Even in the church of Jesus Christ, or the people that proclaim themselves to be the church, there are people who have trouble with the biblical Jesus. You'll find Christians today, even Christians not a million miles away from this room, or I say Christians, professing Christians, who would say, well, the Jesus I believe in would have no problem with any kind of marriage as long as people love each other. Or, the real Jesus would never send anybody to hell. Jesus welcomes everybody and would never, ever judge anybody to eternal damnation. These people, although they claim to believe in the Jesus that we believe in, their Jesus is a false Jesus, a Jesus they've concocted themselves, they've twisted to try to, to make it more palatable for people who have no intention of turning away from their sin. These people will only accept a saviour on their terms. Dear friends, we, we cannot possibly accept Jesus on our terms. We accept him on his terms, don't we? It's possible even, I don't know, tonight that somebody could be here who's refusing to believe in the biblical Jesus because of some innate sense in you that I believe the Messiah should be like this or he should be like this or he shouldn't be like this and therefore I can't believe in the Jesus that Calvary Church and the Church of Jesus Christ believes in. And if this is true about you, let me humbly urge you to humble yourself and come before the Lord and believe in the biblical Jesus. The Pharisees couldn't do that. They had this preconceived idea of what their Messiah should be like, and Jesus wasn't what they were hoping for. In this account, we see Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector. Matthew's the author of the gospel. Jesus calls him away from his life of collecting unfair taxes, and, Jesus, and Matthew, without hesitation, gets up and follows the Lord Jesus unlike so many people. What's the next thing that Matthew does? He invites all his friends, business associates, colleagues, I don't know who they were, a kind of shady group of ne'er-do-wells and sinners. He invites them all into his house to meet with Jesus and his disciples. And he cooks them a slap-up meal. I think Matthew was so impressed by the Lord Jesus that he just had to give his friends the opportunity to meet this man and hear him speak. Think about when you first became a Christian. Wasn't it the most natural thing for you to tell your friends about this good news? Why didn't I understand this before? 
All these years, how was I so stupid not to believe in, in the Messiah and Jesus? The first thing you do is to tell everybody, and you probably annoy lots of people by doing so, but that's, in a sense, that's inevitable when you're a young Christian. You're full of zeal, aren't you? And that's what Matthew's like. Come and see this man. Come and meet with him. Come and hear him speak about the kingdom. And have you noticed how sinners, I use that term in the biblical sense, sinners were drawn to the Lord Jesus. A man who taught that the kingdom of God was open to people like them. Sinners who knew full well what they were and who they were. But they were willing to change and be changed by a merciful God who was welcome to open the gates of the kingdom to them, to all who repented. The Pharisees noticed this. I mean, the whole town would have known, it was only a small town, they would have known that Jesus was there feasting with Matthew and all these ragbags and, you know, people from the town. They asked the disciples this question, why does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Remember, at the time of Jesus, when somebody went down to eat, to eat with somebody else, like we did today at the church lunch, you sit down, you eat with somebody, you're showing that you approve of this person, that you respect this person. It carries far more weight than eating with somebody does today. You know, to eat with somebody at that time was to show that you, this is the person that you, you want to spend time with, that you approve of, that you, you love. It would have been a shocking thing for a man like Jesus to eat with Pharisees, um, eat with tax collectors and sinners. This question of the Pharisees to the disciples is not a curious question. It's steeped in disapproval and opposition. Who does he think he is? You know, friends, the Pharisees are guilty of several wrong assumptions about sinners, about the situation. They make some wrong judgments. Firstly, they assume that Jesus, by spending time with these sinners, that he's somehow approving of their lifestyle or overlooking their lifestyle, winking at their lifestyle, affirming them, or somehow even indulging in this kind of sinful behavior himself. In their understanding, no righteous person would have any dealings with sinners whatsoever. And Jesus' acceptance of Matthew's hospitality would have offended them. They, they think Jesus himself must be polluted. That somehow him, him going to meet with these sinners is Jesus affirming them and saying their sin doesn't matter, which is far from the case. And another wrong assumption that they make is that sinners will always be sinners. Sinners can never change their ways or be changed. The Pharisees write off these people. They write them off. They say these, these people, are, they're just, just sinners. They're no hopers. They're to be scorned. They're to be avoided. They didn't see them as fellow sinners who needed their mercy, needed help. The Pharisees have got it completely wrong. Jesus gives the, the Pharisees a wise answer, doesn't he? A wise response. It's not, health, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, says Jesus, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It would be no surprise to any of us, would it, to see a doctor somewhere being surrounded by sick people. Imagine a country which has been completely ravaged by disease and poverty. A doctor comes from somewhere with a whole bag full of medical supplies. 
and a shipping container with more supplies. He comes there. What does he do when he gets off the plane? Straight away, after he's had a shave and a wash, he goes straight away to the sick people. And he goes about his ministry, his calling to help those people, to do the work that only he can do. Because there are many people who would love to help sick people, but they cannot help. But the doctor is qualified. He knows what he's doing. He goes there and he helps those people. It's no surprise whatsoever. It would be more of a surprise to find him not with those people, to see him sitting you know, by the hotel pool, dossing around rather than helping the people that he's come to help. Jesus says, in the same way that his purpose is to come to call sinners, bring them to salvation through faith and repentance. That's the mission of Jesus. It's a primarily a spiritual mission to call people to repentance. Luke's gospel, Luke has an account of this. He adds the word to repentance. Jesus meant that these people should change and be changed. He didn't plan to leave them as they were. He planned for them to, be, to repent and come to him in faith. The Pharisees should also have been concerned about this too. I haven't got time to go into this. I wanted to look at biblical separation in the Old Testament and um, the idea that Israel was supposed to be a light for the nations. There's this verse I keep coming back to in Daniel chapter 12. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In the Old Testament, God commends people who are righteous, who are calling other people to righteousness, to help people to become righteous. And there are other examples in the Old Testament. If the Pharisees had been truly righteous, they would have been concerned about these people. They would have been trying to reach out to them, trying to, ch- to help them change and put their trust in the Lord and come back to the law. But they weren't concerned. They weren't leading anybody to righteousness. I wonder what you make of this quote. Um, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is another sermon in itself. It's a quote from Hosea chapter 6, the minor prophet. Jesus is not saying that obedience to the law is unimportant or unnecessary, but rather there are weightier matters, more important matters, things which matter more to God than this kind of perfunctory mechanical implementation of righteousness, religious duties without expressing the character of God. Do you remember there's another occasion where Jesus, he lambasted the Pharisees. He really laid into them. He said, you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus is not saying they shouldn't have been doing these things, but rather they neglected the most important matter. The character of God, mercy, and justice. Friends, isn't it toxic and ugly when religious practice, even in the church, becomes mechanical and all about exterior appearances, external appearances, rather than a heart engagement with God and a love for people? It's utterly displeasing to God. It's repugnant when people become religious, but there's not that, the heart of the matter, the things that God truly desires. The church, you know, sometimes Christians go, go to the opposite extreme. They kind of discard all the good things in the church because some people misuse it and become legalistic. We're not to stop doing the things that we're commanded to do, but we're to make sure that the heart of the matter is there, the love for God and the concern for people. I haven't got time to talk too much about this. 
But I want to say this to you as well. You know what? Self-righteousness makes us unmerciful. If you know what it is to have been shown mercy, you won't find it so difficult to show mercy to other people. The heart of the problem was that the Pharisees, they believed that their righteousness was something they could obtain by their own efforts. The Pharisees have no sense that their righteousness is something that has been granted to them by God through grace. If you were to talk to a Pharisee at the time of Jesus about righteousness, he would have said something like this, I'm a righteous man, I keep the law, I obey the commandments, I'm a righteous man. He would have looked at his own deeds, his own life, and he would have taken pride in his own efforts. I hope I'm not doing the Pharisees a disservice by saying that. That's the, that's the impression we get from the Bible. I'm a righteous man. Self-righteousness. And you know what the Pharisee would have said? I know that God will give me a reward for being faithful. Unlike those people who are not faithful. He's reprobates. They will not get any reward from God, but I will get a reward because I am righteous. This, dear friends, this is the ancient curse of self-righteousness, isn't it? Denying flatly the truth that, that salvation and righteousness is always a gift of God. It's never obtained by our own efforts, ever. I saw recently a video of a load of people protesting somewhere. They weren't Christians, they belonged to another religion. And they had all these placards and banners saying infidels go to hell and all kinds of other unpleasant things like that. This is the result, I believe, of a kind of pharisaical, toxic religion that is based on self-righteousness. If you think that God is pleased with you, or I think that God is pleased with me because of my efforts, my good deeds, and my hard work, and my diligence in keeping the law, my meticulous religious devotion, that's what makes me right with God. And it's only natural to think of bad people and sinners and infidels, people who, who don't believe and who don't live up to these standards, to think that they, these people deserve nothing but God's wrath and anger. And they even wish that upon them. Because I'm righteous, they're not righteous. This is what they deserve. But you know what? It's not just people of other religions, and obviously not all people of other religions, but even in the professing church. You ever seen that church in America? You see videos on YouTube and stuff of this church where these people go and stand outside military bases and at funerals of soldiers who've died in Afghanistan shouting abuse at people and telling them they're going to hell, telling them that God hates them. What a repugnant, censorious attitude towards the lost. Why isn't that church trying to reach out to people? Why isn't that church trying to, to show mercy to people, to talk about the goodness of God? Talk about the fact that God welcomes sinners, trying to minister to these people, rather than just damning them and saying, you're a no-hoper and you're going to hell and you're lost and God hates you. How unbiblical, how unchristlike that is, that attitude. I wonder what these people would make of Jesus reaching out in love. That's what self-righteousness does. It makes you damn other people. It makes you love yourself and take pride in yourself. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's the ancient curse that we all struggle with. That Jesus can deliver us from. Personally, I find this a great challenge. Brighton is full of people that I find difficult to love. Whose lifestyle, whose choices I find unpleasant, offensive, even 
at times disgusting. You know, I come here for the Pride Festival and I just weep. And sometimes I can get very censorious towards people, very judgmental, very hard-hearted. And I can pat myself on the back and say, well, you know, look at me. Well, we're, we're Christians and we're doing well. Not like these people who are just subverting our laws, you know, and polluting the minds of our children. And as society turns its back more and more on the word of God, we Christians can be tempted to, to retreat into this little hole little ghetto where we get more and more censorious and more and more cut off from the people that we call to serve. And I know it in my own heart, I can be like this. Let me say this, friends, there is a sense of biblical separation from non-believers. I think the church in this land has often gone too far the other way. It's completely embraced the world, it's become worldly, and it's winked and tolerated all kinds of worldliness within the walls of the church, in in the family of the church. Not this church, but I'm talking about the church in this land in general. You can go too far the other way, become completely worldly, affirming all kinds of things which God hates. We live in this weird society today, don't we, where everything is binary. Have you noticed that? You're either completely for something or you're completely against it. You either totally accept someone's lifestyle, you affirm it and you celebrate it, otherwise you're some kind of bigger who hates it. Dear friends, that's not the Christian way. You know that that expression, love the sinner but hate the sin, has never been more true. Love sinners. Earnestly cry out to the Lord that the Lord would save them. Pray for mercy. And yet, we never ever affirm what they do or lower our standards. Because this is the sin that is ruining them. This is the sin that separates them from God. How can we tolerate that and say it doesn't matter? It does matter. It matters a great deal that they should repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. But we need to watch our hearts, don't we? We don't become hard-hearted and pharisaical. Friends, there is a time to, to turn away from those who steadfastly refuse to listen to the gospel. Some people, as we know, are very hard-hearted. They refuse to listen to the biblical Jesus. We must carry on praying for these people. But we should also be asking God to show his people like the tax collectors and sinners who flock to Jesus, praying for people that show a degree of openness. An openness to the gospel, willingness to listen and engage. Praise God, we know people in our church, on the fringes of our church, who come to this building, people that we know who are open to listen, to hear about the biblical Jesus and say, I'll hear you more on this subject, I'll come back next week and hear some more because I'm open. These are the kind of people we should be praying for, identifying, and coming alongside, helping to know the Lord Jesus. When people shun and say, no, I don't want that, I don't want to hear any more about your Jesus, I, don't, I find you repulsive, you Christians, I don't want to hear any more, sadly we have to walk away and, in a sense, dust the dust off our shoes and say, we'll pray for you, we're not going to keep on banging that drum because it's not going to work. The Spirit of God must do a work. Perhaps what we need to do in these days is look around us and ask God to show us the people that he's already at work in, drawing to himself. These are the people that will listen. These are the people that Jesus went to, spent time with, ministered to, helped and taught the word of God because there was an openness there. They were willing to listen. There's a time when we have to walk away, sadly, reluctantly. How do we deal with censoriousness, indifference, a negative attitude towards the lost. What we need to do is to remember the mercy that God has shown to us. 
dear Christian person, how, how merciful God has been to us. Remember the cross, remember the gospel, the Lord Jesus giving his life, shedding his blood to save us, for sinners. What have we got to boast in? Who are we to look down on others? Yes, we can say what they're doing is wrong. We must, must discern that, but we cannot hate them and despise them and write them off. Jesus never did that, and we should never do that. May we pray that our hearts will be broken by the plight of the lost. I don't know about you, I'm so indifferent towards people who are lost. It's their fault. They deserve it. I couldn't, you know, we must be broken again. Wouldn't revival come to the church if we were so broken? We were motivated to be on our knees in prayer half the night, praying to God for people to be saved. People hanging over a lost eternity. People facing hell one step away from, from judgment. Eternal lostness. Wouldn't it be great if our hearts were stirred again by the Holy Spirit of God to, to grieve for the lost and to use all the opportunities that God gives us? People are not no-hopers. People are not write-offs. The Lord knows those who are his. Their name has been written in the book of life. We don't know. We preach, we serve, we teach, we reach out. Think about us. None of us was any better. None of us was ever, ever any more likely to receive the gospel. We're sinners as well. It's only because God has done a work in our hearts and given us the gift of faith, opened our eyes and regenerated us that we're here tonight worshipping the Lord Jesus. He can do the same for anyone. Hardest atheist, Muslim cleric, sweet little old lady who just has, doesn't really care about the things of God. It doesn't matter who it is, we're all sinners. God can save people. The church is failing in its God-given message, mi- mission, if it refuses to engage with non-Christians. If it refuses to love people, to serve them, to get to know them, to pray for them, to witness to them to allow them to come into contact with the living Christ who dwells in his people by his spirit. We are his ambassadors. We carry this message. We are guardians of it. We teach it faithfully. We present to them. This is the, the, the living Christ who was dead and is alive forever and ever. We never condone sin. We never accept what people do. We don't allow ourselves to be influenced by it. That's, that's a big danger. When we spend time with non-believers, we can be influenced. We must be careful that we're not influenced by it. Jesus was never, ever influenced by sin. When he went to those places, he was totally in control of the situation. We don't lower our standards. We don't make the church worldly. But we love people. We speak the truth in love, always pointing people to Jesus. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. These are the people that Jesus came for. These are the people that we should be going to. Isn't mercy a precious thing? James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. If you're the kind of person that cannot show mercy to fellow sinners, you have to question whether you know the mercy of God in your life. We all find it difficult, I find it difficult, but I pray there's a measure of this in all of us. We remember the mercy that God showed to us. Look at the cross. Let us be a church that demonstrates mercy to the lost. We have an important mission, the most important mission. And this day is full of opportunity. Now, I think we've got time to go into fasting. It's not as long, this bit. So let's go back to verse 14. 
John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, they come to Jesus and ask him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I think this appears to have been a genuine question. It wasn't like the Pharisees. It wasn't, wasn't steeped in criticism and opposition. They were genuinely concerned to know why Jesus' disciples weren't fasting in the same way the Pharisees were fasting. John had pointed the, his disciples to Jesus as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And yet John was put in prison, wasn't he? He was banged up. He was put in prison. And even he had doubts about whether he truly understood Jesus' mission, whether Jesus really was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. It's understandable that John's disciples had some confusion about Jesus and about his disciples. And in fact, John had been taken away, their teacher had been taken from them, so they couldn't even ask him at that time his take on the situation. Jesus answers their their, um, question in a characteristic way, in a proverbial way. He teaches them about this matter. What does Jesus say? How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. In the Old Testament, fasting seems to be closely connected with mourning and repentance. There's lots of examples of it. It's usually there when when the nation is is being judged by God and people come in sincere mourning and they fast and they they wear sackcloth. They come before God and they cry out for mercy for the sins of their nation humbling themselves before God. The ministry of John the Baptist, if you remember John, his ministry was, was based on focusing people's minds on the coming Messiah and preparing the way for him, for Jesus. And John emphasized his humble repentance, preparing your hearts for the Lord who is coming. And no doubt John's followers, John's disciples also did the same. They also fasted and they, they um, prayed prayers of repentance as they waited for the Lord Jesus to come. It's also possible they were fasting because John had been put in prison. They were, they were mourning for their master who'd been taken from them. The Pharisees, of course, they also fasted for a different reason. The Pharisees, uh, they were only supposed to, to fast once a year according to the law, but they prayed twice a week. They fasted twice a week. The Pharisees were fasting all the time in a very ostentatious show of piety, done for the approval of men rather than as a sign of repentance. Why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? In fact, if you remember Matthew 6, Jesus does instruct his followers to fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you fast, don't anybody know about it. Do it in secret. Go into your room. He says, put oil on your face. Make yourself look normal so no one knows you're fasting. See, if Jesus' disciples had been been, been faithful to him, nobody would have known anyway they were were fasting because it would have been a secret. They would have been doing it in secret. Why didn't they fast? They weren't, they weren't to imitate the, the Pharisees and their hypocritical shows, were they? And it wasn't necessary for the disciples of Jesus to, to be like John, to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah in humble repentance, sorrow for the sins of the nation. Why? Because Jesus was with them. Jesus had come. The one they were longing for had come. And Jesus gives an illustration to make this point. I think you get the impression the Jews like weddings, don't you? They love, they love big celebrations and big weddings. In those days, there would have been an enormous wedding banquet. The friends of the bridegroom would feast with him. They'd have a big party, a big meal, until the time when it came for the bridegroom to be taken away, to go with his wife privately alone, and then the, the celebration would come to an end. 
Jesus, Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom. It's a very common Old Testament picture. God and, the, and his people being like a husband and a wife. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. I'm like this bridegroom. The one that Israel has been longing for. While, this, while the Messiah is amongst his people, it's not a time for mourning. It's not a time for, for in, it's a sen- in a sense, it is a time for repentance, but it's not a time for this kind of national mourning, crying out for God to send his Messiah. It's a time for benefiting from the Messiah, walking amongst them, from learning from him, from rejoicing at his presence. But Jesus says a time is coming when he will no longer will be with them. It's probably a reference to Jesus' death coming up, his rejection when there will be this intense sorrow on the part of the disciples. Mentioned in John 16, I'll just read it to you. Very truly I say to you, you will weep and mourn, says Jesus, while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and nobody will take away your joy. The disciples, when Jesus was taken from them, when he went to the cross, there would be this intense period of grief. But while he walked among them, it was a time for rejoicing, a time for learning, a time for rejoicing that God had answered the prayers of his people over the centuries. Jesus himself fasted, we know that. As we've seen, he assumed that his followers also would fast. But the kind of fasting that Jesus talks about seems to be a different kind of fasting than the Old Testament fasting. It's a devotional fasting, a prayerful fasting a good discipline, a spiritual discipline that could be useful for Christians today. Not this sorrowful, mourning, heartbroken, repentant fasting of John and the Old Testament. We Christian people, we can, we can fast. We have freedom to fast as Christians. It's a good thing to do. Some people in this church fast. We fast not in this way of, Lord, how long, how long until you send your Messiah? Lord, please forgive us, our nation, for our sins. We don't fast in that way, in a sense. We, we fast knowing that our sins have been forgiven, that we are the people of God, that we are on the other side of the cross, and that God has given us this great devotional tool to help us, but it's not the same as this bleak fasting of the Old Testament. Finally, we've got this bit in verses 16 and 17 about the, the new wineskins and the unshrunk cloth. It's another illustration from everyday Jewish life. I don't want to talk too much about this, but in, the, in those days, of course, wine was stored in le- leather bottles, leather, leather containers, which could only be used once. If you tried to use them twice, the wine would ferment and the, the leather bottles would blow up and the wine would go everywhere and would be ruined. Nobody in their right mind would have done this. The old wineskins had served their purpose, but they were obsolete. Now it was time for new wineskins. These verses are notoriously difficult to understand various opinions about what they mean but what we, what we do know is Jesus is teaching the incompatibility of the old and the new old cloth will be ruined by a patch made with new cloth new wine will be ruined by old wineskins in the same way Jesus teaching and practices cannot be confined by the old practices, the old traditions the old thought patterns of old covenant Judaism as understood by the Pharisees. The Jews expected the Messiah to lead people back to a kind of national repentance of ethnic Israel. Faithfulness to the old covenant. That's what they expected. The Messiah will come. He'll lead our people back to the law, back to the prophets, back to covenant faithfulness in the sense that they envisaged in the Old Testament. What the prophets before Jesus called for. But Jesus did not come simply to revive Judaism to take us back 
to those forms of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but to bring in something completely new and different. Not completely new, it's rooted in the Old Testament, and yet it's fresh and new and different, with different forms and a different understanding. So Jesus spoke not of a, a, an earthly kingdom, but of a spiritual kingdom. And he instituted the New Testament church, comprising people of every nation who believe in the Lord Jesus. It would have been impossible to combine the New Testament church with the Old Testament, with its practices, with its sacrifices, with its laws. A radically different way of looking at things was needed. Whatever it was, fasting, circumcision, sacrificial system, the role of ethnic Israel, all this had to be re-evaluated in the light of Jesus' teaching. A new understanding was needed. The Pharisees couldn't do that. They were totally wedded to the old way of thinking, the old understanding. But in order for people to have a new understanding, there has to be a great change in the hearts of people. The Pharisees could not accept Jesus or his kingdom because their hearts were unregenerate. They were hard They were sinful. Like the old wineskins, they could not accept the new wine of Jesus' teaching. For them, it seemed heretical, nonsensical. They were unregenerate people. They could not accept what Jesus was saying. In the same way today, I think people are like those old wineskins. Hard-hearted, unable to receive the Spirit of God, unable to believe the gospel. Seems like foolishness to them. You know, don't you, unregenerate people, talk to them about the gospel, it just bounces off them, or it appears to, they don't understand. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit, says Paul. What needs to take place? Man or woman must be born again. The Holy Spirit does that change inside someone. Changes the hearts of people in such a way that he can dwell inside their hearts. Changes the heart of a person so that he can make his home there. Like new wineskins ready to receive the new wine of the Spirit, of the kingdom. When the Holy Spirit does this work, there's a, it's like a new wineskin ready to receive that, that wine. And then suddenly the gospel becomes precious and the Lord Jesus becomes precious. They understand the things of God. They understand the plans and purposes of God. The Pharisees were like the old wineskins. We Christians, we are like the new wineskins. We are in the business, aren't we, of preaching the gospel to the lost or proclaiming the gospel, showing mercy. But we do need to pray, don't we, that God does that work that only he can do to transform the hearts of sinners from old, hard, defunct wineskins that have no purpose bringing that heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone, converting people so the Holy Spirit can come and dwell and make, make, help them to make sense of all this stuff which at the moment is alien, it's like a foreign language. And suddenly when, when the Spirit comes, it makes sense, you understand it. Let's pray and then we'll sing another song. Father God, I've said rather a lot tonight and I pray, Lord, that while I've said will have been